0: Section Two of Trips to the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ralph Snelson. Trips to the Moon by Lucian of Somosita. Translated by Thomas Franklin. Section Two. Instructions for Writing History. Part One. Lucian, in this letter to his friend Philo, after having with infinite humor exposed the absurdities of some contemporary historians, whose works being consigned to oblivion have never reached us, proceeds in the latter part of it to lay down most excellent rules and directions for writing history. My readers will find the one to the last degree pleasant and entertaining, and the other no less useful, sensible, and instructive this is indeed one of Lucian's best pieces. My dear Philo, in the reign of Lysimachus we are told that the people of Abdera were seized with a violent epidemical fever which raged through the whole city, continuing for seven days, at the expiration of which a copious discharge of blood from the nostrils in some, and in others a profuse sweat, carried it off. It was attended, however, with a very ridiculous circumstance, every one of the persons affected by it being suddenly taken with a fit of tragedizing, spouting iambics and roaring out most furiously, particularly the Andromeda of Euripides and the speech of Perseus, which they recited in most lamentable accents. The city swarmed with these pale seventh-day patients, who with loud voices were perpetually bawling out, O tyrant love, or gods and men supreme! and so on and this they continued every day for a long time till winter and the cold weather coming on put an end to their delirium for this disorder they seem in my opinion indebted to archelaus a tragedian at the time in high estimation who in the middle of summer at the very hottest season of the year exhibited the andromeda which had such an effect on the spectators that several of them as soon as they rose up from it fell insensibly into the tragedizing vein the andromeda naturally occurring to their memories and perseus with his medusa still hovering round them now if as they say one may compare great things with small this abderian disorder seems to have seized on many of our literati of the present age not that it sets them on acting tragedies for the folly would not be so great in repeating other people's verses, especially if they were good ones, but ever since the war was begun against the barbarians, the defeat in Armenia, and the victories consequent on it, not one is there amongst us who does not write a history. Or rather, I may say, we are all Thucydides, Erotices, and Xenophons, well may they say war is the parent of all things when one action can make so many historians this puts me in mind of what happened at sinope when the corinthians heard that philip was going to attack them they were all alarmed and fell to work some brushing up their arms others bringing stones to prop up their walls and defend their bulwarks every one in short lending a hand diogenes observing this and having nothing to do for nobody employed him, tucked up his robe, and with all his might fell a-rolling his tub, which he lived in, up and down the cranium. "'What are you about?' said one of his friends. "'Rolling my tub,' replied he, "'that whilst everybody is busy around me, I may not be the only idle person in the kingdom. "'In like manner I, my dear Philo, being very loath in this noisy age to make no noise at all, or to act the part of a mute in the comedy, think it highly proper that I should roll my tub also, not that I mean to write history myself or be a narrator of facts. You need not fear me. I am not so rash, knowing the danger too well if I roll it amongst the stones, especially such a tub as mine, which is not over-strong, so that the least pebble I strike against would dash it in pieces." I will tell you, however, what my design is, how I mean to be present at the battle, and yet keep out of the reach of danger. I intend to shelter myself from the waves and the smoke and the cares that writers are liable to, and only give them a little good advice and a few precepts, to have, in short, some little hand in the building, though I do not expect my name will be inscribed on it as i shall but just touch the mortar with the tip of my finger there are many i know who think there is no necessity for instruction at all with regard to this business any more than there is for walking seeing or eating and that it is the easiest thing in the world for a man to write history if he can but say what comes uppermost but you my friend are convinced that it is no such easy matter nor should it be negligently and carelessly performed, but that, on the other hand, if there be anything in the whole circle of literature that requires more than ordinary care and attention, it is undoubtedly this, at least if a man would wish, as Thucydides says, to labor for posterity. I very well know that I cannot attack so many without rendering myself obnoxious to some, especially those whose histories are already finished and made public, Even if what I say should be approved by them, it would be madness to expect that they should retract anything, or alter that which had been once established, and, as it were, laid up in royal repositories. It may not be amiss, however, to give them these instructions, that in case of another war, the Getty against the Gauls, or the Indians perhaps against the barbarians, for with regard to ourselves there is no danger, our enemies being all subdued. By applying these rules, if they like them, they may know better how to write for the future. If they do not choose this, they may even go on by their old measure. The physician will not break his heart if all the people of Abdera follow their own inclination and continue to act the Andromeda. Criticism is twofold. That which teaches us what we are to choose and that which teaches us what to avoid. We will begin with the last and consider what those faults are which a writer of history should be free from. Next, what it is that will lead him into the right path, how he should begin, what order and method he should observe, what he should pass over in silence, and what he should dwell upon, how things may be best illustrated and connected. Of these, and such as these, we will speak hereafter. In the meantime, let us point out the faults which bad writers are most generally guilty of, the blunders which they commit in language, composition, and sentiment, with many other marks of ignorance which it would be tedious to enumerate, and belong not to our present argument. The principal faults, as I observed to you, are in the language and composition you will find on examination that history in general has a great many of this kind, which, if you listen to them all, you will be sufficiently convinced of, and for this purpose it may not be unseasonable to recollect some of them by way of example. And the first that I shall mention is that intolerable custom which most of them have of omitting facts, and dwelling forever on the praises of their generals and commanders, extolling to the skies their own leaders, and degrading beyond measure those of their enemies, not knowing how much history differs from Panegyric, that there is a great wall between them, or that, to use a musical phrase, they are a double octave distant from each other. The sole business of the Panegyrist is, at all events and by every means, to extol and delight the object of his praise, and it little concerns him whether it be true or not but history will not admit the least degree of falsehood any more than, as physicians say, the windpipe can receive into it any kind of food. These men seem not to know that poetry has its particular rules and precepts, and that history is governed by others directly opposite, that with regard to the former the license is immoderate, and there is scarce any law but what the poet prescribes to himself when he is full of the deity and possessed as it were by the muses if he has a mind to put winged horses to his chariot and drive some through the waters and others over the tops of unbending corn there is no offence taken neither if his jupiter hangs the earth and sea at the end of a chain are we afraid that it should break and destroy us all if he wants to extol agamemnon who shall forbid his bestowing on him the head and eyes of jupiter the breast of his brother neptune and the belt of mars the son of atreus and i must be a composition of all the gods nor are jupiter mars and neptune sufficient perhaps of themselves to give us an idea of his perfection but if history admits any adulation of this kind it becomes a sort of prosaic poetry without its numbers or magnificence a heap of monstrous stories, only more conspicuous by their incredibility. He is unpardonable, therefore, who cannot distinguish one from the other, but lays on history the paint of poetry, its flattery, fable, and hyperbole. It is just as ridiculous as it would be to clothe one of our robust wrestlers, who is as hard as an oak, in fine purple, or some such meretricious garb, and put paint on his cheeks. How would such ornaments debase and degrade him? I do not mean by this that in history we are not to praise sometimes, but it must be done at proper seasons, and in a proper degree, that it may not offend the readers of future ages. For future ages must be considered in this affair, as I shall endeavor to prove hereafter. Those I must here observe are greatly mistaken, who divide history into two parts— the useful and the agreeable, and in consequence of it would introduce panegyric as always delectable and entertaining to the reader. But the division itself is false and delusive for the great end and design of history is to be useful, a species of merit which can only arise from its truth. If the agreeable follows, so much the better, as there may be beauty in a wrestler and yet hercules would esteem the brave though ugly nicostratus as much as the beautiful alcheus and thus history when she adds pleasure to utility may attract more admirers though as long as she is possessed of that greatest of perfections truth she need not be anxious concerning beauty in history nothing fabulous can be agreeable and flattery is disgusting to all readers except the very dregs of the people. Good judges look with the eyes of Argus on every part, reject everything that is false and adulterated, and will admit nothing but what is true, clear, and well expressed. These are the men you are to have a regard to when you write, rather than the vulgar, though your flattery should delight them ever so much. If you stuff history with fulsome, encomium, and idle tales— you will make her like hercules in lydia as you may have seen him painted waiting upon Omphale, who is dressed in the lion's skin with his club in her hand whilst he is represented clothed in yellow and purple and spinning and Omphale beating him with her slipper a ridiculous spectacle wherein everything manly and godlike is sunk and degraded to effeminacy The multitude, perhaps, indeed, may admire such things, but the judicious few whose opinion you despise will always laugh at what is absurd, incongruous, and inconsistent. Everything has a beauty peculiar to itself, but if you put one instead of another, the most beautiful becomes ugly, because it is not in its proper place." I need not add that praise is agreeable only to the person praised and disgustful to everybody else, especially when it is lavishly bestowed as is the practice of most writers who are so extremely desirous of recommending themselves by flattery and dwell so much upon it as to convince the reader it is mere adulation which they have not art enough to conceal but heap up together naked uncovered and totally incredible so that they seldom gain what they expected from it for the person flattered if he has anything noble or manly in him only abhors and despises them for it as mean parasites. Aristobulus, after he had written an account of the single combat between Alexander and Porus, showed that monarch a particular part of it, wherein the better to get into his good graces. He had inserted a great deal more than was true. When Alexander seized the book and threw it, for they happened at that time to be sailing on the Hydaspes directly into the river, "'Thus,' said he, "'ought you to have been served, yourself, for pretending to describe my battles, and killing half a dozen elephants for me with a single spear?' This anger was worthy of Alexander, of him who could not bear the adulation of that architect who promised to transform Mount Athos into a statue of him, but he looked upon the man from that time as a base flatterer, and never employed him afterwards.' what is there in this custom therefore that can be agreeable unless to the proud and vain to deformed men or ugly women who insist on being painted handsome and think they shall look better if the artist gives them a little more red and white such for the most part are the historians of our times who sacrifice everything to the present moment and their own interest and advantage who can only be despised as ignorant flatterers of the age they live in and as men who at the same time by their extravagant stories make everything which they relate liable to suspicion. If, notwithstanding, any are still of opinion that the agreeable should be admitted in history, let them join that which is pleasant with that which is true, by the beauties of style and diction, instead of foisting in, as is commonly done, what is nothing to the purpose." I will now acquaint you with some things I lately picked up in Ionia and Achaea from several historians who gave accounts of this war. By the graces I beseech you to give me credit for what I am going to tell you, as I could swear to the truth of it if it were polite to swear in a dissertation. One of these gentlemen begins by invoking the muses and entreats the goddesses to assist him in the performance. What an excellent setting out! and how properly is this form of speech adapted to history. A little farther on he compares our emperor to Achilles, and the Persian king to Thersites, not considering that his Achilles would have been a much greater man if he had killed Hector rather than Thersites. If the brave should fly, he who pursues must be braver. Then follows an encomium on himself, showing how worthy he is to recite such noble actions and when he has got on a little he extols his own country miletus adding that in this he had acted better than homer who never tells us where he was born he informs us moreover at the end of his preface in the most plain and positive terms that he shall take care to make the best he can of our own affairs and as far as lies in his power to get the upper hand of our enemies the barbarians after investigating the cause of the war he begins thus that vilest of all wretches, Vologesis, entered upon the war for these reasons. Such is this historian's manner. Another, a close imitator of Thucydides, that he may set out as his master does, gives us an exordium that smells of the true Attic honey, and begins thus. "Griparius CALPURNIANUS, a citizen of Pompeia hath written the history of the war between the Parthians and the Romans, showing how they fought with one another, commencing at the time when it first broke out. After this, need I inform you how he harangued in Armenia by another Corsarean orator, or how to be revenged of the Nisibians for not taking part with the Romans, he sent the plague amongst them, taking the whole from Thucydides, excepting the long walls of Athens he had begun from Ethiopia, descended into egypt and passed over great part of the royal territory well it was that he stopped there when i left him he was burying the miserable athenians at nisibus but as i knew what he was going to tell us i took my leave of him another thing very common with these historians is by way of imitating thucydides to make use of his phrases perhaps with a little alteration adopt his manner, in little modes and expressions, such as you must yourself acknowledge, for the same reason, a little more and I had forgot, and the like. This same writer, when he has occasion to mention bridges, fosses, or any of the machines used in war, gives them Roman names, but how does it suit the dignity of history, or resemble Thucydides, to mix the Attic and Italian thus, as if it was ornamental and becoming another of them gives us a plain simple journal of everything that was done such as a common soldier might have written or a settler who followed the camp this however was tolerable because it pretended to nothing more and might be useful by supplying materials for some better historian i only blame him for his pompous introduction calamorphous physician to the sixth legion of spearmen his history of the Parthian War. Then his books are all carefully numbered, and he entertains us with a most frigid preface, which he concludes with saying that a physician must be the fittest of all men to write history, because Escalopagus was the son of Apollo, and Apollo is the leader of the Muses and the great prince of literature." Besides this, after setting out in delicate ionic, he drops, I know not how, into the most vulgar style and expressions used only by the very dregs of the people. And here I must not pass over a certain wise man, whose name, however, I shall not mention. His work is lately published at Corinth, and is beyond everything one could have conceived. In the very first sentence of his preface he takes his readers to task, and convinces them by the most sagacious method of reasoning that none but a wise man should ever attempt to write history then comes syllogism upon syllogism every kind of argument is by turns made use of to introduce the meanest and most fulsome adulation and even this is brought in by syllogism and interrogation what appeared to me the most intolerable and unbecoming the long beard of a philosopher was his saying in the preface that our emperor was above all men most happy, whose actions even philosophers did not disdain to celebrate. Surely this, if it ought to be said at all, should have been left for us to say rather than himself. Neither must we here forget that historian who begins thus, I come to speak of the Romans and Persians, and a little after he says, for the Persians ought to suffer, and in another place, there was one Osroas, whom the Greeks called Oxyroas, with many things of this kind. This man is just such a one as him I mentioned before, only that one is like Thucydides, and the other the exact resemblance of Herodotus. But there is yet another writer, renowned for eloquence, another Thucydides, or rather superior to him, who most elaborately describes every city, mountain, field, and river, and cries out with all his might, May the great averter of evil turn it all on our enemies. This is colder than Caspian snow or Celtic ice. The emperor's shield takes up a whole book to describe. The gorgon's eyes are blue and black and white, the serpent's twine about his hair, and his belt has all the colors of the rainbow. How many thousand lines does it cost him to describe the breeches and his horse's bridle? and how Osroes' hair looked when he swam over the Tigris, what sort of a cave he fled into, and how it was shaded all over with ivy and myrtle and laurel, twined together. You plainly see how necessary this was to the history, and that we could not possibly have understood what was going forward without it. From inability and ignorance of everything useful, these men are driven to descriptions of countries and caverns, and when they come into a multiplicity of great and momentous affairs are utterly at a loss. Like a servant enriched on a sudden by coming into his master's estate, who does not know how to put on his clothes, or to eat as he should do, but when fine birds, fat sows, and hares are placed before him, falls to and eats till he bursts of salt meat and pottage the writer i just now mentioned describes the strangest wounds and the most extraordinary deaths you ever heard of tells us of a man's being wounded in the great toe and expiring immediately and how on priscus the general bawling out loud seven and twenty of the enemy fell down dead upon the spot he has told lies moreover about the number of the slain in contradiction to the account given in by the leaders he will have it that seventy thousand two hundred and thirty-six of the enemy died at Europus, and of the romans only two and nine wounded surely nobody in their senses can bear this another thing should be mentioned here also which is no little fault from the affectation of Atticism and a more than ordinary attention to purity of diction he has taken the liberty to turn the roman names into greek call saturninus cronius fronto frontus titianus titanius and others still more ridiculous with regard to the death of severion he informs us that everybody else was mistaken when they imagined that he perished by the sword for that the man starved himself to death as he thought that the easiest way of dying not knowing which was the case that he could only have fasted three days whereas many have lived without food for seven, unless we are to suppose that Osroes stood waiting till Severian had starved himself completely, and for that reason he would not live out the whole week. But in what class, my dear Philo, shall we rank those historians who are perpetually making use of poetical expressions such as, The engine crushed, the wall thundered, and in another place, Edessa resounded with the shock of arms, and all was noise and tumult around. And again, often the leader in his mind revolved how best he might approach the wall. At the same time amongst these were interspersed some of the meanest and most beggarly phrases, such as the leader of the army epistolized his master. The soldiers bought utensils. They washed and waited on them with many other things of the same kind, like a tragedian with a high cothurnus on one foot and a slipper on the other. You will meet with many of these writers who will give you a fine, heroic, long preface that makes you hope for something extraordinary to follow, when, after all, the body of the history shall be idle, weak, and trifling, such as put you in mind of a sporting Cupid who covers his head with the mask of an Hercules or Titan. The reader immediately cries out, The mountain has brought forth. Certainly it ought not to be so. Everything should be alike, and of the same color, the body fitted to the head, not a golden helmet, with a ridiculous breastplate made of stinking skins, shreds and patches, a basket shield and hogskin boots, and yet numbers of them put the head of a Rhodian colossus on the body of a dwarf whilst others show you a body without a head, and step directly into the midst of things, bringing in Xenophon for their authority, who begins with, Darius and Pericitis had two sons, so likewise of other ancient writers, not considering that the narration itself may sometimes supply the place of preface or exordium, though it does not appear to the vulgar eye, as we shall show hereafter." All this, however, with regard to style and composition, may be borne with, but when they misinform us about places and make mistakes not of a few leagues but whole day's journeys, what shall we say to such historians? One of them who never, we may suppose, so much as conversed with a Syrian, or picked up anything concerning them in the barber's shop when he speaks of Europus tells us it is situated in mesopotamia two days journey from euphrates and was built by the adesines not content with this the same noble writer has taken away my poor country and carried it off tower bulwarks and all to mesopotamia where he says it is shut up between two rivers which at least run close to if they do not wash the walls of it after this it would be to no purpose my dear philo for me to assure you that i am not from parthia nor do i belong to mesopotamia of which this admirable historian has thought fit to make me an inhabitant what he tells us of severian and which he swears he heard from those who were eye-witnesses of it is no doubt extremely probable that he did not choose to drink poison or to hang himself but was resolved to find out some new and tragical way of dying, That accordingly having some large cups of very fine glass, as soon as he had taken the resolution to finish himself, he broke one of them in pieces, and with a fragment of it cut his throat. He would not make use of sword or spear, that his death might be more noble and heroic." To complete all, because Thucydides made a funeral oration on the heroes who fell at the beginning of the Peloponnesian War, he also thought something should be said of Severian. These historians, you must know, will always have a little struggle with Thucydides, though he had nothing to do with the war in Armenia. Our writer, therefore, after burying Severian, most magnificently places at his sepulchre one Aphranius Silo, a centurion of the rival of Pericles, who spoke so fine a declamation upon him as by heaven made me laugh till I cried again, particularly when the orator seemed deeply afflicted and with tears in his eyes, lamented the sumptuous entertainments and drinking bouts which he should no more partake of, To crown all, with an imitation of Ajax, the orator draws his sword, and, as it became the noble Afranius before all the assembly, kills himself at the tomb. So Mars defend me, but he deserved to die much sooner for making such a declamation. When those, says he, who were present beheld this, they were filled with admiration, and beyond measure extolled Ephranius.' for my own part i pitied him for the loss of the cakes and dishes which he so lamented and only blamed him for not destroying the writer of the history before he made an end of himself end of section two